This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Pediatric Airway Assessment by Dr. Tanya Miller. Hi there, I'm Tanya Miller, one of the anesthesiologists here on staff at Children's Hospital Boston. And I'm going to speak about uh, airway management or approach to the airway management of pediatrics, which can sometimes be somewhat challenging. The goal of this talk is to give you an idea of how to approach the airway of a patient from the perspective of an anesthesiologist. We're going to go over assessment and then some special circumstances that you might want to keep in mind uh, when you're approaching a pediatric airway. Airway exam. For assessment of the patient, always look to the ABCs, the airway, breathing, and circulation. As far as a specific airway exam, you're assessing the ability to intubate. Alignment of the oral axis and the tracheal axis is one thing that you need to keep in mind. Are you going to be able to align these axes in this patient or not? Or how difficult will it be? Are you going to have any visualization obstacles, such as do they have limited mouth opening? What is their tongue to box ratio? And we'll go over that in a minute. And how much range of motion do they have with their neck? As far as mouth opening, we frequently We'll talk about a classification of, a, of an airway with the Malampati classification. When a patient fully opens their mouth, if you can see the uvula and space and the tongue and the posterior pharynx behind it, that's a class one. And in this picture, you'll see that there are four classifications all the way to a class four, which would be where you can only see really the hard palate when they open their mouth. As far as anterior mandibular space is concerned, frequently you're taught to measure the thyromental distance from um, underneath the chin with your fingers. This works fine in adults because you can standardize saying three finger breadths, but in small patients, everybody has different finger sizes, and so this becomes much less useful. However, as you get accustomed to looking at the children and their faces and the neck structures, you can see if they have an adequate amount of anterior mandibular space and what that is, is how much space they have to house the tongue that is inside. The tongue size is also something that you'll want to look at. Do they have an extremely large tongue? Is it protuberant out of their mouth? Do they not have space inside their mouth to house that tongue? This is what I'm talking about when I talk to a tongue to box ratio. If you think of the tongue as a structure that's normally contained inside of a box, does that box have any more space inside of it than just the area that is needed for the tongue to take up? Or is the tongue so large that it is taking up the entire space inside the box of the mouth and even protruding out? Most patients are somewhere in between the two. As far as the oral pharyngeal shape, you'll look at the palate, the tonsils, and think about the coine of the nose because infants, as you know, are obligate nasal breathers. So becoming difficult to mask ventilate if you can't get an airway in through the mouth and have to rely on the nose, and yet 
if they have coenal atresia or some other issues with formation of the nose, that might be also a very difficult situation to even ventilate. So to give you an example of the pharyngeal shape, this picture shows a patient that has a cleft lip and palate. You see that the palate actually is open on the inside, and these palates typically have a smaller um, lateral to lateral side distance, but they're very open, so the shape of the box in which the tongue is housed is going to be completely different. When it comes to intubating these patients, you may find that your laryngoscope may get caught up inside the cleft that is there, as opposed to being able to intubate normally uh, through a patient who has an intact palate. When we talk of range of motion of the neck, we're talking about head extension and head flexion, but we're also talking about how much the mandible is mobile. The TMJ joint, is it able to be subluxed? Can you pull it forward? Can you open your mouth all the way completely? Or do you have limitation for some reason, whether you have joint disease, some sort of trauma, um, or some other sort of uh, dysplasia or extra small mandibular bone size issue. The neck itself, is it long enough to be able to extend and flex? Or is it very short? Is it contractured? Does the patient have a syndrome that their neck is not a, a normal size for them? Lastly, in assessing the alignment and visualization in preparation for instrumenting the airway, you want to look at the neck structure and the neck structures inside, such as a thyroid. Does the patient have a big thyroid? Are there any other masses that would um, alter the normal anatomy that you would expect when you're going to be encountering the larynx and the sub, uh, sublaryngeal area? Pediatric considerations. So in terms of pediatric airway development, the head and the occiput of their head has a different uh, relationship to the rest of the size of their body. This diagram shows a situation of a patient laying supine and where you may or may not want to be bolstering a patient in order to get an optimal visual alignment of the oral and then the laryngeal axes. You see in the newborn or very young child, it's less likely that you're going to want a pillow under the head because they already have a large occiput and putting a pillow under their head would malalign these axes of the, the oral pharynx and the larynx versus in a kid who is 10, 15, or an adult where you frequently will put a pillow behind the head to bolster in order to bring up their oral axis to meet uh, their laryngeal axis. Also, their tongue is very large compared to an adult. So again, going to the box to tongue ratio, they already start off with a larger tongue to the box of their mouth ratio than an adult. The larynx location tends to be more cephalad and more anterior than in an adult. And therefore, the tracheal opening will be more difficult to align when uh, you are looking through the oropharynx down towards the tracheal axis because you will note it's more anterior than you would expect. Again, this is why we don't 
put a head pillow underneath an infant automatically. The cricoid cartilage is a circumferential ring and in pediatrics this becomes the smallest part or the narrowest part of the pediatric airway versus in an adult as the patient grows and all their structures grow the actually the inlet to the larynx is smaller than the cricoid cartilage. Critical update. Recent radiological studies have demonstrated that the subglottic region, not the cricoid, is the narrowest part of the pediatric airway. However, there is concern that these findings may be the result of artifact related to which phase of respiration was captured in the images. Autopsy specimens still confirm that the cricoid outlet is the narrowest level of the pediatric airway. The epithelium of a pediatric airway is very delicate, more so than the adult, and airway diameter being extra small in a pediatric patient, the epithelium, if it gets irritated, inflamed, or incurs any sort of swelling in the airway management process, more swelling in a small airway will lead to much uh, greater effect on airway um, flow dynamics than would the same amount of air, airway swelling in an airway that starts out at a much larger diameter to begin with. The epiglottis is something um, to make comment on. The adult epiglottis tends to be longer, broader, more easily uh, manipulated with a laryngoscope blade than does a neonate glottis. Here are two pictures, one showing the adult glottis, which is much larger, and one showing the neonate glottis, which you can tell is very short and quite narrow almost omega-shaped, we would call it. This is much more difficult to put behind a blade or to manipulate because it's very stiff and will flop everywhere you don't want it to go. As far as the laryngeal opening, this picture denotes that the laryngeal opening is more conical, almost, like a funnel, where the thyroid cartilage down to the cricoid cartilage narrows quite a bit. By the time children become adults, this becomes much more cylindrical as opposed to a funnel shape. Again, just emphasizing that the cricoid ring may be your smallest area in your pediatric patient's airway. These two x-rays, if we compare them, the one on the right is an adult airway. And you can see that the epiglottis and the posterior laryngeal airway, the glottic area, and then the tracheus, all almost line up naturally in a very vertical line. Compare that to the pediatric airway where the epiglottis and the glottic opening is on an angle coming from the posterior pharynx and then makes a turn as the trachea then dives back posteriorly from the glottic opening. Abnormal anatomical relationships. Continuing on as to some abnormal um, anatomical relationships that you may encounter in a pediatric patient. You may, from a multitude of reasons, have an abnormal situation of an otherwise normal bit of anatomy for a pediatric patient. For example, 
if they've had surgery or radiation or some sort of disease process that lends to scarring, you may find that their face looks very different as this teen uh, pictured here appears very different after he's had surgery and radiation for a cancer that was found in and around his neck. Or you may see a pediatric patient with a very common disease process such as a retropharyngeal abscess in which there's some sort of inflammatory mass that creates a distortion of normal airway anatomy. This is a CT scan showing such an abscess and how it's displaced the airway to be off-center and a little bit smaller than otherwise uh, expected. There are other issues that you may have, such as bone or spine issues, a patient with severe scoliosis or some sort of disease process that lends their spine to have an abnormal curvature, or if they have any kind of inflammation or joint disease, they may have limited um, uh, mobility of their neck, but also can lead to distortions of anatomical relationships. Childhood obesity is another uh, issue with airway management in terms of getting a proper positioning for alignment of your axes. Here we see a teenager who is quite obese and in order to align all the different areas or axes, the LA being the laryngeal air airway, the OA being the oral airway, and the PA being the pharyngeal airway. In order to align these as closely as possible to one another for the optimal airway intervention, you see here we have a big ramp made out of blankets and pillows in order to get her in a proper position. Likewise, if you have some sort of trauma coming in and, for example, a pneumothorax as shown in this slide, you could have distortion of the airway anatomy distal to the supraglottic structures that may um, make the placement of a breathing tube more difficult. Other abnormal anatomical relationships can come in pediatrics from simply having congenital abnormalities. Here are a few different examples of this. The first is laryngomalacia, where the structures of the larynx are extra floppy. It may be more difficult to get a breathing tube into a patient who has a laryngeal malacia because the epiglottis may be even more compacted on itself. It may be difficult to visualize the cords. And also, your patient's breathing status, respiratory status at the time of airway intervention may require some unique um, manipulations or pharmacological choices in order to preserve the respiratory function as much as possible while intubating these patients. A patient with Pierre Robin syndrome is another classical example of an abnormal airway where they have mandibular hypoplasia, they have a very short neck, and they have a large tongue. Very difficult to um, intubate these patients from the standpoint of alignment of all the axes and being able to see the, the glottis, which is very anterior, and very cephalad in these patients. Trisomy 21 children. This is a, a typical face of a, of a child with Down syndrome. As you recall, the tongue is very, very large. They tend to have very short necks. 
They may have a lantoaxial instability of their C1 uh, spine, thus making it maybe more dangerous to manipulate their head into an optimal position. And then the clipophile patient, who has a very, very short neck and some bony abnormalities that inhibit the extension of the spine. Again, all these patients may require different techniques in order to align their axes for visualization, or they may be impossible to visualize and intubate directly and may need to have other sorts of intubating techniques. And lastly, as far as abnormalities um, of anatomical relationship, if you have abnormal masses that just normally aren't there, they're not congenital, or they may be, but they're um, acquired or otherwise, whether it's a mediastinal mass, a foreign body in the airway, um, or vascular malformations that can grow over time. These can make your airway management very difficult. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.